Do you like libraries? Sure you do. Do you like children crying in the dark all alone, wondering where their mothers are? Maybe. I don't know you. Help us keep the lights on at the Band Library by going to bandlibrary.com and clicking on the survey link. It's totally anonymous, you know, unless you make us angry. Hangry. Bring us a sandwich. So go to thebandlibrary.com, take that survey. Now on for the show. podcast where we talk about books that have been banned or censored or otherwise shot and killed on the steps of the courthouse building because those sons of bitches deserve to die those sons of bitches deserve to die oh god damn it here comes the book clan today i again i don't normally do you know some kind of like trigger warning or whatever else i used to back in the day and it was sort of tongue-in-cheek but whatever but today we're going to, this book starts out with a horrific incident that I'm not going to try to gloss over, but I'm not going to dwell on it either because good God, but it affects the entire rest of the book and it affects, you know, how the story goes on. It's the reason for the season, if you will. So yeah, trigger warning for child abuse, um, heavy racism, adult situations, you know, Strong language, all that fucking shit. Because, <laughs> whoo, John Grisham wrote A Time to Kill, which is the book that we're dealing with today. Yeah, he, he didn't hold back for his first novel. He just sort of went for it. Did everything. Not, like, whoo, it's, it's rough. That first sentence, that first thing, if, if it doesn't disgust you, it grabs the shit out of you and says, what kind of book are we in for? And then it sort of, I don't want to say it goes downhill because it's a good read. It's interesting. It's, you know, detailed. But, yeah, you can definitely tell it's a first novel. I haven't read much after about John Grisham either. Give you a spoiler alert on that. I've read this book and I've read The Firm and I think I read The Client. You know, he was a good old boy, Mississippi author. Might as well. My aunt hates him. She said she saw him at a party one time and drew all her conclusions from there. And heard people say things. I don't know. Who trusts people with third-hand information? But let's get into John Grisham himself, the author. Uh, he is the second of five siblings, born in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Father was a construction worker, cotton farmer. Mother was a homemaker. She stayed home. When he was four years old, the family settled in South Haven, Mississippi. Uh, he wanted to be a baseball player when he was a kid, but really just kind of went out there. Uh, there's a bunch of bullshit. I don't know why I took all these notes. He... Started working as a nursery, you know, like a tree farm shit. Watering bushes for a dollar an hour. He hated that, and he was on the fence crew for a dollar fifty an hour. He apparently wrote about that. There's no future in this job. At 16, he became a plumbing contractor. He worked for a plumbing contractor. He never drew inspiration from that miserable work, quote-unquote. And through contact with his fathers, he got on the highway asphalt crew at age 17. During that time, he, um, this is where he got serious about college. Like, I don't want to do this menial shit for the rest of my life. Or menial, whatever. There was a fight, and, uh, 
some gunfire broke out among the crew. He was working on that road crew, and he uh, he ran the hell to a restroom like friggin' Jurassic Park and hid. And he didn't come out until after all the police had like arrested everybody. And he hitchhiked home and said, screw that, I'm going to college. I'm not working for a living. These people are dangerous. <laughs> His next work was in retail. He did work at a department store. He was working in the underwear section. It was very humiliating. So next time you think about any kind of sanctimonious jerk, think about him working at the underwear section. I uh, stayed around there for a little while, worked in toys and appliances. Apparently, he got into a confrontation with a company spy who was, you know, like those customer service people that, you know, they just tell, you know, did you ask about the coupons today or whatever? Apparently, he got into a confrontation and um, he left the store after that and he returned to his hometown as a trial lawyer. That was all during college. He went to Northwest Mississippi Community College in Senatobia, Mississippi, whatever, and then Delta State in Cleveland. Yeah, that's where he got his BS in accounting. He went into he was going to become a tax lawyer, went to Ole Miss for his law degree, but then decided, eh, just general civil litigation. He became a trial lawyer after that. He, he was just kind of crazy. He graduated in 1981 with his JD. Um, he went down to Brazil for a little bit uh, with the First Baptist Church of Oxford, and, you know, did mission work. He practiced law for about a decade, he won an election as a Democrat in the Mississippi House of Representatives, which is kind of amazing. I didn't even know we had Democrats in Mississippi. I think they all fled. Uh, he served from 1983 to 1990. He represented the 7th District, uh, DeSoto County area, whatever. Uh, then he, let's see, moved on, blah, blah, blah. He started writing uh, around the site. Well, I guess he was just writing and he turned shit in. We'll talk about the book itself. But his career really blossomed with the second book, The Firm. Everybody really liked that one. And that's the one they got him to give up practicing law. He did go back in 1996 to fight for a family of railroad workers who were, if somebody's killed on the job, so he went back to work. And that's pretty much it. Lives in a day after completing Time to Kill, he began work on the firm immediately. Uh, according to a 2006 interview with Charlie Rose, he stated he usually takes about six months to write a book, and his favorite author is John LeCare. Grisham married Renee Jones May 8th, 1981. They have two children. And he's one of his kids played baseball for the University of Virginia. And that's John Grisham. Now, a little word from our sponsor. This author's life was brought to you by the Library Law Class down at the Band Library. Remember how at the beginning we asked you to go to bandlibrary.com and take a survey? Yeah, we don't remember that either. Whatever. Anyway, because not many people have taken the survey, we've had to advertise our law class. Uh, he's given us money, so why not? We're not sure if it's strictly legal, but you can also, if you want to help us out, not have these weird-ass ads or have your name read at the end of the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash bandlibrary. Support us today. The library law class will be taught by, I'm sorry, i got to get back to that, local lawyer Jed Manhunter. Yeah, that's his real name, so shut up. Uh, he'll be there from Saturdays from like 10 to 4, doing like expungement stuff, uh, clinics, anything to do with people who are already convicted. He's not really good at getting you out of jail, but he'll help you out once you're in. So that's, that's not bad. So, uh, yeah, bandlibrary.com. Take the survey. Go on our support page if you can support us. We'd really like to have this guy out of the building. Thanks. Back to the show. 
Now, as we're talking about the book itself, the book was written. He was he was hanging around the courtroom like lawyers do, and there was this big case in 1984 that came up uh, where he overheard a 12 year old girl telling a jury about what just happened to her, and the story intrigued him. He began to watch the trial. He went through. Um, he saw how members of the jury cried when she told about how she was raped and beaten. Uh, it was then, he said to the New York Times, that that's when the story was born. Uh, he basically thought, quote, What would happen if a girl's father had murdered the assailants? He took three years to write the first book, the book together. It was rejected from 28 publishers before Winwood Press came and got it, uh, gave it a 5,000 print, uh, printing in June of 1989. And did all right. I guess he did okay. He got his second book out, and the second book was a big success, and he moved on. The book was banned a bunch of times, supposedly, enough to get it at number 67 on ALA's top 100 banned challenge books from 2000 to 2009. Uh, unfortunately, the only time I can actually find where it was challenger banned was in 2005, North Dakota. Uh, it was challenged and retained at Fargo North High School in their advanced English classes, despite complaints of graphic rape and murder scenes that were in the book. And there's, yeah, it's, it's pretty rough. It, it's pretty hard. I would honestly, you could re, I read this in high school and was like, holy crap. Like, this is brutal. The only thing more brutal than I think I read in high school was probably Pet Cemetery. If you get really, like, down and dirty with it. But yeah. So yeah, the, like, again, trigger warning again. This is not an easy book to talk about because it's, it's pretty damn graphic. And I'm going to need y'all to settle in a little bit, because this book's going to be a while. I can't express it enough that, yeah, this gets rough. Um, We start with Billy Ray Cobb and Willard. I don't remember the guy's first name, sorry. Uh, while they're beating and raping a 10-year-old black girl. They're just two rednecks. Her name's Tanya Haley, and they're drinking. Uh, they decided, because they can't do anything else, they're just going to hang her. Um, but while they're setting everything up and trying to get her up in the air, a car comes along. So Cobb, while Willard's passed out, he he takes her and he wants to throw her off a bridge, but he drives around enough and he can't find one, so he just dumps her body in a ravine. A couple fishermen find her and her father, Carl Lee, he comes home and finds his daughter savaged and carries her himself to the ambulance. Now, Ozzy, he's the sheriff. He's black. He's in a white Mississippi county, Ford County. That's where the story takes place. It's unusual for a white county to have elected a black sheriff, which makes Ozzy's position a little precarious, you can tell. He visits the Haley family, and they're in the hospital, and says, I'm tracking down Billy Ray Cobb and whoever might have else have done this. And he goes and picks up this guy, Bumpo, an informant. He busted on with pot one time, so the guy helps him out. And Bumpo goes on the, in this honky-tonk where they're pretty sure Billy Ray Cobb is. And Willard in there, and they're drinking. And he gives him some money to buy him a few rounds on the sheriff's dime. And he comes out, and Ozzy tells him that they're... He tells Ozzy that, yeah, they're, they're in there, and they're bragging about it. They, they did it. So Ozzy gets warrants, and he goes in there, and he arrests the two, beats the crap out of him a little bit. And this is the point where we meet Jake Brigance. This is sort of our hero, I guess. 
creature of habit, we get his morning routine. Wakes up, his school teacher wife is laying there, and he doesn't bother her at 4.30 a.m. His daughter's in the next room, doesn't bother her either, but he goes to the coffee shop by 6, and he's in his law office by 7. He's got a nice Victorian house. He's got a Saab car that looks strange out on the Mississippi streets. But he's doing okay. At the coffee shop in the morning, he's asked if he ever defended Cobb because the news is already out. And he says no. And then he gets told about the rape of Haley's daughter. He knew the family. He defended one of them in a murder charge, actually. And Jake's law practice, he gets to there, and we learn that it comes from Lucian. Lucian's an old, drunk, liberal terror of a lawyer who got disbarred at one point. He gave basically everything to Jake for, like, a low, you know, cause. Including Ethel, who's there. She was apparently Lucian's father's favorite, if you want to call it that. And one of her children looks suspiciously like Lucian, but don't say much, you know. And she pretty much won't leave. She's kind of bad at her job, but... Jake keeps her around because what the hell else is he going to do? So Cobb and Willard finally wake up and they're hungover in jail and Ozzy threatens the shit out of them. And Willard's mother drops in and says, Willard's mother drops in to Jake's and says, you're the best criminal lawyer in town. You got to help us. And he's like, no. And he doesn't even meet her. He doesn't, she doesn't get past Ethel. And Willard's being questioned. He wants a lawyer, but they say, you know, yeah, whatever. You're going to die in Port Parchment which is a work farm, if you've ever... They used to be a threat to those little Mississippi boys. You screw up, they're going to throw you in parchment. They'll die in those fields. It's fucking hell. I knew people that went there. It's, it's, it's hellish from everything. If you think hot Mississippi sun, think that where nobody gives a shit if you maybe, I don't know, keel over because you haven't had enough water. So Willard confesses after hearing that, you know, he's going to probably get the same treatment he gave that little girl in parchment. But he asked, don't, don't tell Cobb that I, I gave him up. And there's a preliminary trial, and Jake runs over and just wants to, he, you know, he's a lawyer, he wants to know what the hell's going on. Here's the evidence presented by the prosecution and the sheriff, and we pretty much all know all that. Then he talks to Carl Lee, and Carl Lee asks, you know, what would you do if that was your daughter? Jake says, I'd kill him. And frankly, you'd have a better chance. I'd, you know, but you know, don't don't you do it because I'm white. I'd get away with it. It's kind of sets up something for later. I just realized. But Carly says, you know, if something does happen. Will you defend me? And Jake says, well, sure. He says, was well, that the path the prisoners take to go to court and come back? And he says, yeah. Carly says, good. And Lester, Carly's brother, who Jake defended for murder, he went on to Chicago, and Jake got him off, after Jake got him off his murder trial, he went, married this white Swedish lady who's really horrible at cooking and who's really scared of Mississippi, which this time she probably should be. Even now, you'll get some looks, because people are assholes and set in their ways. But Lester comes to the hospital, and he begins sort of plotting with Carly. Tanya wakes up at this point. Her jaw's wired shut. She can't eat candy. Brothers are eating all her candy. These little vignettes are honestly the killer. That Grisham does really good at just dropping in little... King does the same sort of thing. Stephen King does the same sort of thing. I guess it's that generation of writer where you just drop in a little vignette about 
know, this is how the victim's doing, or this is how somebody important. Just something that touches the emotional core. So Carly, he's plotting. He's in the courthouse. He hid overnight. And he just sort of, like, walks around. Because there's, this, you know, this is late 80s. There's in a rural Mississippi courthouse. You can just stay in there. There's no security. So he just sort of cases the joint, pretty much. And Jake and his wife, Carla, they talk. And she thinks he should tell somebody what Carly said to him. And he says, yeah, but I'd do the same thing. I'd probably kill some. I'd probably kill the sons of bitches. She says, well, I wouldn't convict you. And Carly and Lester, they go out to Memphis and they see a man about an M16, old war buddy named Cat of Carly's. And he says, you know, he's into a lot of shady shit. I mean, anybody can go to and get an M16 in an afternoon. Yeah, there's some issues there. Then we're back at Jake and he goes and talks to Ozzy, who apparently they had like an old college rivalry. I think Ozzy broke Jake's leg in high school football something like that and they talk about Carly and the next little vignette it's one of the this is the one that broke my heart this is the one I mean everything before now is brutal but this it killed me because of how you ever read a sentence and it just rings so true it's so basic even in the most extraordinary circumstances I mean this is this little girl a week out has been beaten raped she was her jaw was broken it's wired shut she can't eat candy Everybody's fawning over her. And she gets to go home now. And there's one line where they, how they, they wheel her out. Because, you know, you got to be in the wheelchair. They put her in the car. She gets to ride up front. Quote, she sat up in the front seat like a big girl. That is such a commonplace expression. You know, like a big boy, like a big girl. The phrasing of it. That's so my childhood. That that hit me so deep inside. You know, you're gonna oh well, you're gonna sit up there like a big boy. Just something, you know, my mama or the youth minister or somebody, you know, somebody that you connect to when you're younger. Those phrases that people say that wasn't connected and just gut punched me, man. It's fucking Oh that hurt. And if whatever you say about Grisham's writing, some of it's sort of formulaic, some of it's out there, but I guess you could just say he's a Mississippi boy because that fucking, that hit me in the core. She sat up in the front seat like a big girl. She grew up. There's so many layers to that sentence. It's just, and it's just kind of stuffed in the middle of a paragraph. It doesn't, but God. So anyway, we're in the bail hearing and the judge is drinking, quote-unquote, ice water. He's an alcoholic and he'll just keep drinking through most of this trial. And he berates the Memphis attorney that comes in that, you know, the I think Willard hired his mom. And he gets surprised when they ask for more bail than they agreed on. And the boys are let out. And as they're let out, Lester starts saying a prayer. And Jake, he's over in his law practice. He's got this balcony that sort of looks over this town square. He's smoking a cigar. And as they're let out of the courtroom, there's sort of like this stairway that they have to go down. And next to the bottom of the stairway, there's a janitor's closet. And in that janitor's closet is Carl Lee with an M16, and he pops out. 
And I guess the best way to say is that he just shoots them, shoots the shit out of them. Laughing crazily. Accidentally gets one deputy in the foot. We'll talk about him in a bit. But he gets away easy. He drops the machine gun, goes in the bathroom, jumps through the window, walks to his car, gets in his car, and takes off. And Jake hears the gunshots, and he runs over, and he finds Ozzy, and he sees the bodies, and, like, it's, it's pretty horrific. The explanation of the murder itself, and then, you know, like, brains leaking out of their heads from where parts of it just blown off. Because it's an M16, and I think he went full auto. He just, he killed him. He killed him fucking good. And Ozzy tells him, you know, get the hell out of here. And he says, don't question Carl Lee without me. Because he knows Carl Lee's going to be calling him. And Ozzy and a row of deputies go out and get Carl Lee. And he comes out and he's holding Tanya in his hand, in his arms. He explains to the kids the best he could that he's going to be going away for a while. And Ozzy, Ozzy doesn't want to handcuff him. At this point, we have Detective Moss. And if it sounds a little different, sorry, I had to pause and restart, so... If I'm sound a little lost or forget things, that's why. So we have one of the the funnier people in the book, Detective Moss, who's got a sort of a dry, dark sense of humor. I forget what he tells the people this time, but he's basically getting reporters to move their vans, and they're like, what's happened, what's happened? And he's like, well, I've decided to go into, I forget what he says, it's something, it's funny. He says, well, I'm excited to, I don't know. Put aluminum siding on my house. Things like that. Just, and all the reporters are like, what the hell is he talking about? And then Ozzy brings in Carl Lee. And Carl Lee's sitting in the front seat. And he's talking to the reporters a little bit. And like, we've arrested him. This is what happened. And Jake comes in and he talks. And him and Carl Lee iron out, basically, what did you do? And he's like, I shot them boys. I waited for them. I got them. He's like, how much can you pay? And he's like, well, total, $7,500 says, well, how much can you give me now? Carly says, I could probably get together $1,000. So Jake says, well, for a capital murder offense, that's really low. But I guess he doesn't have a chance. And we start to get the idea here, especially with this next little bit, that Jake's really in this. He's a lawyer, so he's really in this for the recognition. Because once you start doing high-profile trials, people start coming your way. So Jake goes out and talks to reporters, tells them no comment, pretty much everything, but says, of course, his client isn't pleading guilty. Later that night, he goes home, and Carla, she's recorded all the news for him, and he's sure the publicity will be good. This is where we get this. Then the phone rings, and he gets a little bit of a death threat. And at the all-around town, especially like the coffee shops in the morning, the gossip mill just starts spinning. And the judge calls Jake up and asks, how early you want the pre- preliminary trial? Because he, he, the, the judge wants this gone. He doesn't want to have to deal with this. He knows it's going to be a complete shit show. So Jake goes again, talks to reporters, and he says, he goes over the trial procedure, what's going to happen. Calm, cool, and efficient. Basically, this is just an info dump about exactly what's about, about to happen in the trial itself. And Jake's handling the reporters and you know, all the different little machinations that go with a capital murder trial. Something high profile. And then Cobb and Willard's funerals happen. And Cobb's family sit around talking about, you know, back in the day, the black guy did that. 
And I'll go ahead and say right now, they don't say black guy. They drop every N-bomb you can imagine in this book. And it's throughout the book. Good people, bad people, black people, white people. Everybody says the N-bomb in this book. That's just kind of, I don't know. Like It almost desensitizes it to you after a while. To the point where, near the end, I mean, we've got the bit about race. And it's about race the whole way through. But it desensitizes you to the everyday minutia of racism until you get to the end of the book. And then it just sort of gut punches you with it again. It's always shocking, especially nowadays when, you know, I remember when I was younger, the word was never thrown around. Again, I came from deep south Mississippi around the time, and I grew up around the time when this book was popular. I remember hearing the word, but never as much as you do in this. This does seem extreme. And I didn't exactly grow up in a cosmopolitan atmosphere, I'm just saying. So anyway, yeah, maybe they should call it the plan, the clan, what the Cobb's family decide. Again, we got Detective or Deputy Moss. He's talking to the reporters, getting them back, but he just starts sort of lying. Says, oh yeah, we got the Black Panthers involved. We got everybody involved. It's insane in there. And he's basically just running, like I said, he's running um, opposition so that Ozzy and other people can do things in the back and but Moss can just sit there and like talk to him and just kind of he knows the reporters are all just full of crap and they're just looking for their story so he just gives them the weirdest story he can think of we got Jake fending off the reporters at breakfast because again he can't do his normal routine everything's going a little crazy he goes and talks to Carl Lee and Carl Lee's happy he's eating with the sheriff and playing cards in the sheriff's office he's waiting to get on tv because Jake and Ozzy's been on tv and you know, he, he wants his day in the sun, and Jake's like, no. We got the preliminary trial tomorrow. You can be on TV then. This ain't a, it's a circus. It's weird. And in the hospital, the deputy that caught the bullet in the egg, he starts going worse. Things bad's going that way, and if it goes too bad, well. I think a black guy shooting two white guys is bad. Black guy shooting a cop is worse. And then the deputies, they go out and they they get Curtis Todd. He's one of the inmates there in the prison. He looks a lot like Carl Lee, and they escort him out. And he runs away, and the deputies are yelling, and the reporters go off chasing him. And then they just take Carl Lee out the side, off the back. It's just kind of funny. It's an interesting little scene. There's a lot of fun, I don't know, watch Longmire, the OIT, old Indian trick. Just a weird little, let's just mess with the reporters as much as we can. The cops do it a lot. Cops do it more than anybody. It's just it's kind of fun here at the beginning until things get real dark. So we have Judge Bullard. He's the one that, he doesn't want this in this case. He doesn't want this trial at all. He's going to push this out. He's freaked out because, like, there's just, there's, there's just a mob of black people that want Haley free. They want Carl Lee to get free. And white people are out there and they want him dead. Because what's he going to do? Not convict the black guy for killing a white guy? Two white boys? And he's, yeah, Judge Baller's just drinking, he's straight drinking vodka on the bench, calling it ice water. The one real hard witness they have is the janitor, Murphy, for the courthouse. And he stutters horribly, so they they make somebody else, because the judge doesn't want to hear him, have to stutter his way through, so the judge gets somebody else. And 
Jake's sitting there. He doesn't request bail. He doesn't do anything else. He meet, he reads the, meets the reporters after. Says, you know the the DA. He he spoke too early. Buckley is getting up. He's getting a little crazy. But it's okay because we're going to go to trial and we're going to have a nice little trial. And back in the hospital, Deputy Looney, oh, that leg went bad. They had to cut off a lower third of it. Things aren't looking good for Carl Lee, but at least Looney's alive. Looney, sorry. And here's where we really get the district attorney, Buckley, who will figure in real heavily through the rest of this story. He's interviewed, and he says he's seeking the death penalty. He's win-win. Jake calls him the governor, because he's this high-profile case, of course, will get him national acclaim. It'll get him election results. It'll get him higher up as he ever could be. Of course, he's the people's champion. Now, after being flustered by a reporter saying, yeah, Jake beat him up on the murder. He got him pretty good. He says, well, I've beaten Jake Brigance 90 times out of 100, and I can deal with it. All his armed robbery and grand larceny cases, no problem. Yeah, he got me once on that Lester thing, but that's fine. That case was that case. This case is this case. Back at his office, Jake talks to Ethel, and she's getting threatening calls, and he says, well, you know, it happens. That's pretty much it. And he goes out to talk to Lucian, and Lucian has this pretty black maid that lives with him. They talk over the trial options, what defense he could go with, and pretty much they just say, yeah, you got to go with crazy, temporary insanity. But whether or not it happens or whatever works out, you're going to be famous. Jake's going to be famous. Jake goes home, and apparently she's heard about it. She's gotten a couple of the phone calls, threatening phone calls towards Anybody who will defend or help that black guy shot those white boys. And his wife's really worried, and he tells Carla, if it gets real bad, if we think we're going to be hurt, you know, I'll quit. But maybe you should go up with your mom and daddy anyway while this whole thing goes down. And she says, no, I'm not leaving you. If it gets that bad, you better quit. He says, okay. So Lester, Carly's brother, he comes up to Jake and gives him $900 and says, that's what we got right now for the down payment. Jake says it was 1000 says, well, you know, Gwen and the kids, Carly's wife and the kids, they got to eat. They got to pay bills. He says, well, he goes to the bank and they won't give him a loan because the land and the shack on it aren't worth anything. And Carly's convinced that nobody wants the land in the shack. He can't put up any money for Jake's you know, defense, or for his bills. Jay gets a little... This becomes a spot of contention, I guess the best we could say, through most of the book, that this is a large trial that's going to take a lot of time and man hours. And You know, a lawyer has an advanced degree. He deserves to be compensated for his time, and Carly's not doing jack about it. So we go to Claude's. Claude's is a bur- barbecue joint. It's mostly where the black folks go, but you know, just to circulate through, and because the ribs are amazing. You get 20 minutes to sit down and eat. Jake goes every Friday, I believe. And him and the banker sit there, and they talk over money, and Jake's bleeding money. He's not getting enough money in, but he's got to do this whole trial. And the banker says, you know, I'm not giving you anything. The shack and the land that that's worth, it's not going to work out, and we're not going to lend you any money so you can keep going, even though we understand this will give good claim you'll have people coming in 
but lawyers have it bad all over and it's not going to work out. And this New York Times reporter, McKittrick, says he should come talk to Jake and Jake records the conversation and McKittrick and he talk about how far in the trial Carl Lee can get in Mississippi and Jake says he'll get he'll get a fair one as he would in New York or wherever. It's just brought up, you know, just because it happened in Mississippi doesn't mean law is different. Which is kind of horseshit, if you really know the area. What's Jake? Jake's just prickling up to this New York Times reporter looking down on the South, saying, you know, they're not as forward-thinking as they could be. It's completely true. They're not. But it is what it is. And after church, the Carly's family goes to Jake's parents. Not Carly's family. Jake's family goes to Jake's parents' house, and they haven't heard much about the trial, and he doesn't want to talk about it much. And Hannah busts out with what's rape, and everything goes a little quiet and awkward. Over at the Mount Zion Church, this is where the family's hanging out and rocking and rolling. The Haley's show up, and they really turn it up and give a show. And they're going to help out the Haley family. Carly gets take over to see Looney in the hospital. They both hug and cry and says he's sorry. And Looney says he understands that was his little girl. Jake hears about it. He doesn't like it, and he complains about it. He's not getting any money. And they go over what's going to happen in trial, and the arraignment, and we learn that poor Carl Lee missed too many days over at the mill, and he's gotten fired. Now let's take a little break right now to hear from our sponsors. Have you ever been fired? Come on down to the library and talk to Jed Manhunter, lawyer with Manhunter, Manhunter, and Bill. Jed Manhunter will take your case, even if you did do it. We all know you did it. Jed Manhunter promises you not to charge you in the library, and didn't lie about that at all. Better not have. Jed Manhunter takes personal checks and debit cards. If you don't have legal needs, good for you. Maybe go over to the library's Patreon, patreon.com slash bandlibrary. Help us out a little bit. For a dollar a month, you get access to weekly bonus episodes, early access to normal episodes, and all the fiction sold in the bookstore. That's patreon.com slash bandlibrary. Or Jed Manhunter, working out of study room number three. Back to the show. So Judge News, he assembles a grand jury, and he swears them all in. And pretty much from now on, the the last judge is out. The vodka drinking one, he's gone. D.A. Buckley gets everybody through a few indictments in the grand jury, and he brings Ozzy in with Carly's case right up front. You know, get them while they're warm. They know what they're here for. One jury fights it, and Buckley has to remind them that, you know, they're not trying the case. They're just saying, if not, if a if a crime occurred. And it comes out with only one vote for indictment. Or within one vote for indictment. So, the way grand jury works is you have like, you know, 12, 13 individuals and they say whether or not the crime happened or not. And in Carl Lee's case, or like most of them, they said, no, it didn't happen. And then it just gets tipped over by one or two people for the majority to say it did happen. And Cobb's brother meets with and says he'll start a clan meeting in the country. And Jake and Carla watch Buckley's brief appearance on the news and then they have sex. And that's a weird juxtaposition I just threw in your face. And then we have Harry Rex. He's probably one of my favorite creations of Mr. Grisham. He comes in. He's sort of a shady lawyer guy. I think he used car salesman. And he knows pretty much what's happened anywhere. Nobody is supposed to know what happens in the grand jury, but he knows. And he tells 
Jake about how close the indictment is. And Jake meets with the DA and the judge and tells him he needs about 60 days to prepare for trial. And Jake tells Carl Lee the date of the trial and Gwen is out of money. Can't get him any more. Carl Lee needs maybe some of that money back. And Carl Lee knows how useless her family is. And Jay's like, well, maybe they can help her a little bit. And Tanya goes to the doctor and two weeks later it still hurts her. We're at the arraignment and Carl Lee pleads guilty. Not guilty. And Buckley jumps the gun on bail. Before Jake even asked for it, Buckley's like, I won't give bail. And the news says, and Judge Noose is like, he hasn't asked yet. Calm your ass down. On the way out, he grabs Jake and Jake and the Haley family. Little Tanya sitting in Carl Lee's lap, her daddy, who protected her. They have a little press conference. And Lester has to go home. He has to go back to Chicago. But Jake needs money for a psychiatrist. It's a thousand dollars to, you know, prove that Carl Lee was crazy. And Cat tells Carl Lee, remember Cat, he got him the M16, he can use his fancy lawyer for free. Gets him out of all kind of scrapes and bumps. And Jake reads about it in the paper that he's been fired. Carl Lee's got him a new lawyer. And his wife says, it's okay, it's fine. And the black churches all gathered together for defense fund you know they've got the NAACP they'll they'll call him and Jake goes out on a family picnic and Carla talks to him about you know don't call Lester you you lost the case it's not yours anymore Carl he can hire and fire whoever he wants don't call Lester to come down here and get him back that night a cross is burned in the front yard and Jake's like ah shit and then we're back in the and the new lawyer calls Jake up and is like, hey, we've talked to the Sullivan firm and we've talked to you. And since you're the old lawyer, we want to, you know, hire you for a local aid. Because when Mississippi, when a lawyer comes up from out of state, Mississippi has to have like um, a lawyer to, a local lawyer to deal with them. Basically, if you don't have a pra- uh, license to practice law in Mississippi, you have to have a local lawyer help you out. I think that's basically it. He says, well, if Jake's not going to help him, I'll go call the Sullivan case. And Jake says that's fine with him. And Jake gets Lester's number. And he talks to the judge about how, you know, I got fired. And Ethel led Buckley up into Jake's office, and he, Jake chews Ethel out. He let the DA into my office. He should be waiting downstairs with everybody else. Yeah, he just snaps at her. And Buckley's gloating. Oh, I'm so sorry you didn't get the case of the century. Sucks to be you. Then he calls up Lester, and Lester says, I'll drive down. That's bullshit, Jake. You help me out of the bind. We can. Carly shouldn't have fired you. I'll drive down. I'll be there this weekend. We'll talk to him. And at home, Carla talks about how, you know, they can just put it all behind him. He hasn't told her about all the machinations he's been doing to get back into Carl. Lee's good graces, I guess is the word. And Jake goes and talks to Leroy, who talks to Carl Lee about the Memphis lawyer not visiting. Leroy's the sort of second case, and he talks to Jake a couple times. And Jake basically, you know, says, okay, here's what I can do with your case, because Leroy's in jail with Carl Lee. He says, okay, yeah, that's no problem. We can do that and do that. And How's how's Carl Lee doing? You know him in there, right? And he says, oh, he's, he's beating up. He hated firing you, Jake. And he says, well, yeah, that's trouble. I guess, you know, 
he hadn't been visited by his new lawyer. I heard that, and the guy's like, yeah, that's, that's pretty useless, huh? Jake says, oh, I wouldn't worry about it. But if it was me, I'd be worried. You know, he sends uh, Leroy back in there. And it's just kind of funny. These sideways dealings he does with it. And then a civil rights leader shows up and says the crooked lawyer is a crook. Can use him. Carl Lee, what are you doing? The the lawyer you're you're using is he deals with, you know, his clients are rapists and thieves, and he's a big city lawyer. He's gonna come into this small town. He's gonna tell everybody that's better. You better use Jake. Lester drives in Chicago and he goes in and talks to Carl Lee. Pretty much says the same thing. Jake's people listen to Jake around here. They're not gonna listen to some suit from Memphis. That's crazy. Jake wakes up early. There's nothing in the papers. Carly learns that, well, Tanya's not going to have kids. That she has nightmares at night. She's terrified all the time. When asked about it, he's not sorry for killing them kids. And as hard he did what's right. Jake gets a call from the Memphis lawyer, who kind of chews him out, but it is what it is, and meets up with the drunk psychiatrist that Lucian hooked him up with. And the deputy, remember that lost his leg, he's now on dispatch, so he's doing okay. And we learn that the NAACP is coming down to Clanton. They take Carl Lee over to Whitfield, the mental hospital, Mississippi State Mental Hospital, also known as Whitfield, you know, to get psychologically evaluated by the state. And Jake argues for a change of venue, mostly because he doesn't think there's going to be enough black jurors on the trial, and he's pretty much right. But supposedly, you know, that's not supposed to matter. And at the trial for their venue change, Judge Noose snaps at Buckley because Buckley keeps yelling. He tries to... Buckley's making this a giant Shakespearean battle between himself and Jake. And Jake calls up Harry Rex, and Harry Rex spars with Buckley, and he calls up Reverend Agee, who's a leader of the Black Church Association, and he calls up the sheriff and... Basically, they all say that nobody in the county is unbiased. Everybody in their social circles has an opinion on this case. Because, good God, how could you not? And in Chambers, Judge Noose issues a gag order, and Buckley is completely pissed off because he can't, you know, they can't grandstand in front of the reporters. And Buckley releases six of his 20 different witnesses because the the judge was like, no. We're not listening to 20 different witnesses saying that there will be a fair trial. Pick your best six. Back in his thing. In his law office, Ethel's there. Still smarting from where Jake snapped at her. And says, Lee, you don't have any money. There's no money coming in. We can't pay the bills this month. And over at Carl Lee's house, Ta- little Tanya, she can't sleep. Without all the lights on, second there's darkness, she freaks out. And then Jake goes back to the banker and says, Hey, can I get a loan? I just need I need a loan to make it through. This is not on Carl Lee's property. This is just for me. He gets it. Gwen and Carl Lee talk about what it was like going up in the mental hospital at Whitfield and how the drunk psychiatrist that Jake offers talked to him just like once a little bit. And she says, I don't have any money. And he says, Well, I'll get you some. I'll try. I'll work on it. So this guy named Renfield, he comes down. He's from the NAACP, and he meets with all the preachers. 
the black preachers in town that have been, you know, organizing, helping out, gathering money. And then they meet with Jake, Carly, and Ozzy, and they get all the preachers together, and they say, you know, this is not the best way to go about things. This is not how they things are supposed to be. That, you know, there should be, we've got powerful NAACP lawyers. We've got everything going for us. And Jake sort of understands that, you know, they're sort of doing it for the cause, which is not a bad thing, except if it goes south, it'll throw, they'll throw him under the bus, Carl Lee. And it comes out that there's all this money saved up, like I said, that's been gathering for the family, but none of it's gone for the family. So Carl Lee goes into the preachers, I think uh, Ames, forget what I said, but yeah, they promised the money for the defense. So all the preachers in town have been lying. They've been basically trying to court the NAACP, trying to get status. And this is sort of where you learn that there's no good people in this book. They're all just people, really. And there's definitely bad people. But for the most part, everybody's got their own agenda. Even Jake, our hero. He's just doing it so that, you know, he's not doing it for the honor. He's not doing it because he thinks that Carl Lee deserves the best defense possible. Although he may believe that. He's doing it for the publicity. Because eventually there's going to be a whole lot of... There's going to be a whole lot of cases coming towards him when this national news. So yeah, Judge News calls Jake into his house and tells him, Oh, yeah, and Carl Lee says, well, I'll stick with Jake, since all y'all have been lying. And Judge News calls Jake to his house and tells him he's denying the change of venue. So Jake goes to Lucian's, and he's going to everything, and he just gets except epically drunk, just crazy drunk. And he, he talks, he hasn't been drunk since he got married because his wife, Carla, doesn't. She frowns on drinking. Her dad was drunk, apparently. And hungover, Jake meets in his office the next day this, well, this really nice-looking law student. Doesn't wear a bra. Keeps getting mentioned. Ellen Rourke. Roark, as they call her throughout the book. She's from Boston. Her daddy's a really good defense lawyer. She's at Ole Miss getting her law degree because that's where her mama went. And he takes her on as a researcher and a helper because that's pretty much all she's done her entire life and she's very good at it. And they go to Claude's and they argue about the death penalty and Jake's for it. Thinks it's a preventative measure and all that noise. And then we get the jury list being made up and Jake gets a copy of it from Harry Rex, of course, because Harry Rex knows just about everybody. And he passes it around to his friends like, do you know these people? Let me know where their head's at. And Ethel, who meets Ellen, and very contentiously, has to watch the clan beat up on her husband one night. They just come to her house and kick the shit out of him. And Carl Lee and his family and Ozzie, they shame the Reverend A.G. into releasing the money that the church collected, get him in there, say, you collected all that. What if all the people that you heard about, he's, he tries to say, it's for the defense. Now it's for the appeal, because Jake's going to lose. Carly says, well, 
You better release some of that money to my family that you collected in the name of my family. And I know what kind of car you drive. I know what kind of suit that is. It's better than the people you took money from. And we get a little bit of interstitial stuff where the there's this guy being blackmailed into going through the jury list and checking people off by the DA. And Lucian and Ellen Mead, and they're having a good time. And there's a big rally, and A.G., the Reverend, gets up to speak, and Lucian and Harry Rex and Ellen and the banker, Atkovich, I'm not sure how you say his name, they meet up all together with Jake to discuss the jury pool. And they all drink and talk about the jurors and just have a nice little afternoon. And while that happens, the clown, the clown, I should call it just the clown, with a K. But the clan, they all rally and they, they get out in front because the black people have been out in the thing, so the Klan should be able to march too, shouldn't they? And then a firebomb falls down on the Imperial Wizard, a guy named Stump, who is talking, lights his ass on fire, and the whole thing starts off a riot. It beats the shit out of everybody, including a reporter. Everybody sort of gets in on that. The Klan then burns some crosses and gets shot at and get the fuck out. And Jake goes back to Noose and he says, Look, we need a chain of, change of venue. Things are going south real bad. And the reason someone has to be on, somebody's got something on the judge because he's just not, he's not bowing. He's not doing anything when there's a literal riot outside happening in the small town. And Ellen's a good researcher. We learn all that. And Jake Tasser, we're looking up the state psychiatrist and seeing if he's ever said in court that someone was crazy. Apparently, it looks like he always sides on the side of the district attorney. Jake and Roark, and they go out on a date in the woods. And She hates fried pickles, we learn, which means that she's not a human being, some kind of machine. And men and women can't be friends, they talk about that, because there's definitely an attraction. And have I mentioned that his wife is out of town now? I think she left earlier, there was... You know, I honestly think there. I skipped a whole part where Jake found dynamite outside his house. I don't know what happened to that, and I apologize. So after that happened, they get the hell out on her, his wife and son or daughter. So yeah, Jake and Ozzy and the mayor talk about maybe bringing up the national guard, and Carl Lee gets to go home, visit his family, and Bud. Ethel's husband, old man, who the clan beat up, he passes away. The National Guard shows up, of course, and Ellen and Jake drink margaritas and they talk about the jury pool, who's formed of 94 people. The clan and the black crowds are yelling outside, and Jake requests change of venue again because there's definitely some contention with the people that show up. And it looks like it's going to be a white woman jury. All the women, people coming through. And there's a, there's a very interesting way to, it goes on forever how they pick the jury, but let's just say they pick the jury and move on. And they have a nice day. And they get carted out of town. And they get the opening statements. And the trial's starting now. The opening statements. Buckley goes on for an hour and a half. Jake does 14 minutes. Everybody seems very happy about Jake's. 
And Cobb and Willard's mothers are called up, and Buckley asks if they heard the shot, if their sons are dead. And it's very sad state with both women crying, and Jake gets up and asks how many other children they raped. And Ellen later, like, everybody's like, that is a horrible thing to do to a poor grieving mother. And he's, and Ellen's like, no, it's brilliant. Because it puts back in their, everyone's mind that these weren't angels that got gunned down. They'd done some horrific shit, and maybe they deserved it. So Jake and Ellen and Harry Rex, they all have Marita, Margaritas, Marita, whatever that means. And that's what they're talking about, you know, what Jake did. Buckley, the next day, presents these photographs, and the M16 is evidence, and Ozzy gets up there, and he talks about fingerprints and ballistic experts, and everybody else gets up there just to basically say that the weapon was Carl Lee's. He used it. And Buckley calls up the stuttering janitor, for some, you know, because he's the only one. Jake doesn't even bother cross-examining the guy. It's kind of funny. And then he calls up Looney, the guy who lost his leg, the deputy. And he makes him limp around and talk about things, and he cross-examines him, and Looney says he would have done the same thing, and Carl Lee was acting crazy. And the state rests their case. And then Jake gets shot at while coming through some guy with a gun sniper rifle and a guardsman gets hit and he's paralyzed and Jake goes over and tells the judge hey, yeah I'm not gonna come to court and he just gets super drunk and Ellen's like well I don't really need to be here for this I don't guess so she goes back home and she gets pulled over and by somebody with flashing lights and she says, who the hell is it? And they knock her down, they take her out, and they strip her, and they cut her hair off, and they burn her car, and they beat her up. This guy named Mickey Mouse, who's, he's, he actually told about the dynamite on Jake's house and a couple other incidences. He stays around and then goes and help, gets help, calls the cops. A little informant in there. And Jake calls up Bass as a witness. He's pretty good. This is the drunken psychiatrist that Lucian hired. And, of course, when they go for a recess, him and Lucian go get just drunk. Back on the stand, he's a good witness, actually. He's doing pretty good until Buckley gets up there and calls examines him. And it turns out he was convicted of statutory rape in Texas a long time ago, but still, everybody is shocked. And then Ozzy comes in and tells... Tells him that Roark never made it to Oxford, that she was abducted and beaten. And it turns out, the man's record, the statutory rape, it was all expunged. Man's wife and kid, he actually married her, had a kid. But she died, and you know, the damage is done for this jury. And Carl Lee, apparently he got up on the stand, but we only sort of hear about it. We don't get the full testimony. And I don't know why, and you would even point put this person on the stand who's supposedly crazy or whatever and then Jake's house is burned down goes up one night and just the whole thing Lucian there's this whole thing where Lucian and the juror that he paid off before somehow there's a juror on there that he just happened to have paid off before and they're trying to make a deal and Jake goes to the hospital with Harry Rex and he talks to Roark's father and the family of the paralyzed guardsman that got shot because of him. 
And then they go out and Harry Rex is just like, have a swift divorce. Just get it over with. You're all done. It's easier. And Lucian, Lucian, he recommends a, well, a good closing argument would also help the case. And Jake goes up on stage. He calls out the state psychiatrist and it just tears the man apart, saying that, well, you've never given an insanity plea, but everybody that you have given an insanity say that they're perfectly sane when they committed the crime. Several of them were convicted by reason of insanity and are under your care. So if you say they were okay at the time, how can you be at Whitfield helping them? And it just sort of goes back and forth. And then Jake gives his closing statement. And he, it's really well done. It's really, it's a nice, it's written in prose. It's not like his actual statement. I, kind of, I really like, I actually like this because it's not like his speech. He focuses on, you know, being a daddy and protecting your daughter and that kind of thing. And the juror, juries is completely undecided. They keep going back and forth. They have to come back the next day. And we're there at one time. A uh, juror gets jumped and beaten up and while well, he's going for like, he's at the, they're at the hotel and he gets beat up and says, you know, you better not. And juror, Lucian says about the guy that wants to be bribed, but Jake says, no, don't worry about it. And then the next day, while the jury's still out, 15,000 people, black people, converge on the town square and pro- they, Lucian called in the guard, basically. And the reverends called in the guard, and everybody called in, everyone who come down to help. And Buckley wants a mistrial, because I almost sort of see this as like like those scene in the movie where you know your hero's in the car, and the crowd's around them rocking it back and forth. That's the courtroom, is the car getting rocked back and forth. Everybody feels it outside. They've already been through one riot, and what happens if the jury convicts Carl Lee? I mean, they're obviously having a problem, but... Whew. We get a little bit of interstitial Mickey Mouse, the Klansman, that would you know call in. Apparently he's dead, and the Klan just up and left Ford County. They're done now. We don't really hear much out. Um, that's it. I, I thought that was one of the more strange, more of the unsatisfying part of the movie or in the book. If you ever watch the movie of this, Matthew McConaughey plays Jake and. Samuel Jackson plays Carl Lee, and Sandra Bullock plays Roark. Much bigger role in the movie. There's like a big climax where he goes and rescues her. Not in the book, though, sorry. The clan just sort of leaves. For whatever reason, we they don't know why, but the jury comes back and says not guilty. And Jake's just like, hell yeah, and goes to the revolutions. And Carl Lee's out, and he's having fun. And Jake and his little drunk company go to juror Wanda, who we sort of heard through the book, but she wasn't important to the plot, mostly, until now. I didn't realize it. And she tells him, yeah, I was the, I was, I think I was the linchpin that changed the whole jury thing over. He's like, well, what the hell did you say? She says, well, I had them close their eyes. Imagine Carl Lee. Imagine little Tanya were white and the two boys that got shot were black and how would you convict them yeah that's pretty fucked up and then 
Jake's about to go out and confront the reporters, but then he just says, fuck it. He, he, he's going to go after he reports the reporters. He's just going to go to his family in North Carolina. Everybody's like, you've got to jump on this cap capitalize. Now you could be on the news all the time. He's like, ah, I'm done. I'm going to North Carolina where my wife and daughter are. We're going to hang out. So maybe it does show that he gets, he changed a little bit. He's not so much out for the publicity. And that's where the book ends. And like I said, it's definitely a first novel. It's not a great novel. It's not the best thing you'll ever read. It's definitely interesting though. And if you really want to start a discussion about race, it's got a hell of a concept. And throughout the entire book, like it's, it's really, Grisham is a decent writer. Although there's large portions of this where it's the jury selection pool, whereas I guess it's germane to the plot, but God, it's just so tedious. There's some there's some really like like pacing problems, I guess, in the book, really. There's a lot of times where I put it down where it was like, Yeah, I'm not coming back to that anytime soon. Then there's that line like she wrote up front like a big girl. If I, I, there's there's a couple lines in there, just southern phrases. Um, things that I don't know, maybe if I haven't heard in a while or just little incidents, things that I don't know, that, that sort of struck me. And But that's me personally. And that's it. Um, like I said, you've heard a couple times in this that we're doing that survey. So go to bandlibrary.com, click the survey, take the survey, however you want. I want to thank the friends of the library over on Patreon, patreon.com slash bandlibrary. There's Naomi, Kate, Mateo, Jen, Anna Furslow, Kathleen, Gregory, Kirsten, I'm trying to say your name right, I'm sorry, Amanda, Elizabeth, Kat, Bob, Kimberly, Brendan, and Susan. Last but not least, definitely. I want to really thank everyone on that list. That support really means a whole lot. And I try to put out an extra episode a week. April is going to be Hemingway. I'm going to go through his short stories. You know, just something extra, a little bit. So if you want to join in on that, let me know. Or go on patreon.com slash bandlibrary. But that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Stay in. Read a book. Music, Dances and Dames, by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.